the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Maggie Haberman. I'm a Washington correspondent for the New York Times, and I'm excited to be here moderating today's program. I'm pleased to be joined by the Wall Street Journal's senior White House reporter, Michael Bender, to discuss his new book, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, The Inside Story of How Trump Lost. Wonderful title. Michael joined the Wall Street Journal in 2016, where he has since published over 1,100 stories. He has been recognized for his coverage, receiving multiple awards for his political analysis and reporting of the Trump administration. In his new book, Michael chronicles Donald Trump's final year as president, as he and his campaign team struggle through an epic convergence of the COVID-19 pandemic, the ensuing economic collapse, and the civil rights upheaval that unraveled their re-election strategy. In this stunning expose, he brings readers within the walls of the White House to reveal how Trump lost, drawing a straight line from his presidency to his defeat, and ultimately to the deadly storming of the U.S. Capitol building. Thank you, Michael Bender, for joining us. Hi, Maggie. Thanks so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. I'm so excited. It is my pleasure. You are, you, are, you are one of the premier chroniclers of the Trump White House, so it is an honor for me to be able to do this event with you. Um, I want to start out with a question about the array of books that have been written about the now former president. Um, they generally fall into one of two categories. Uh, either they portray him as you know the second coming of an Axis power from World War II, or as the presidential version, essentially, of Forrest Gump. Now, you didn't do either. And in my experience, neither is actually correct. Um, What is your takeaway, not just after reporting on this book for the past year plus, but reporting on the entire White House on on who the former president is and how he operates? Yeah, Um, it's a good question. And and yeah, I mean, I try to uh, explain Trump as best I can here uh, and my experience of covering him for four years in the White House in both campaigns. Um, as as not just a Republican and a political candidate and as a president, but also you know the person I you know got to know um, you know sitting across from him in the Oval Office or on Air Force One or um, in Trump Tower as a candidate, and um, you know I do think like this is it, I, I I try to come at it a few different ways and, and right, you mentioned eleven I've done eleven hundred stories eleven hundred stories on Trump. Right. I mean, I'm not really all that interested in reading another story on Trump or reading another book on Trump. So from the very start, I wanted to uh, infuse this book with something that I would want to read. Try to put something on each page that 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 Mm -hmm. that that made the experience worth it. And this was before I I kind of knew exactly what was going on behind closed doors in the in the White House or certainly January 6th. So there, there is a lot of my experience in this book and, and what it was like, uh, you know, dealing with some of these folks as, as human beings, right. And, um, for the good and the bad and the ugly. Um, and, you know, I do think that this, that this book is unique in that from what's been written up to Trump till now, and that it's, it is behind, it, we have lots of scenes behind, you know, uh, behind the curtains inside the Oval Office and, you know, under the hood of the campaign, and you know, I, I I spent two years with with some of these uh, you know most loyal rally goers, you know, like folks thirty, forty, fifty rallies, um, you, you know, to explain why you know what seventy five million people voted for Trump, right? I mean, they're, they're, we we can't lose sight of that, um, and not only to explain what happened, but also looking forward, right? I mean, there, he drew th- post January sixth, um, you know, a historic riot at the U.S. Capitol. That he was intimately, you know, played a, a key role in. Um, thousands of people showed up for him 
in Ohio last month. Thousands showed up for him in Florida next month. I mean, it's a, it's, 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 it's not just trying to understand what happened last year, but, but it's a pressing question for the Republican Party and the, and the country now. Um, I want to apologize to those of you who are watching and getting a true taste of authentic Brooklyn outside of my window uh, where there's lots of noise, but the window has to stay open or I will melt. So I apologize. Um, so just try to tune that out and just listen to us. You talk about the the supporters of the former president who you spent a lot of time with. And, and that is, I think, something that really distinguishes your book from what I think has been written previously and probably a lot of what will be written. What were some of the surprises spending time with these folks? Take us inside what it was like to travel with them as they as they move from rally to rally, what their experience was, why they felt so bonded to him? Yeah, I mean, I guess I kind of want to start with that question by explaining like why I, I did this and it's sort of like a mea culpa, right? I mean, it was it was the it was the summer of 2019. Uh, he had just um, announced his it's his rally where he's the kickoff rally uh, mm -hmm. for the reelection campaign mm -hmm. in Orlando. And um, there was you know, hundreds of media down there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we had a team of reporters from the Wall Street Journal. I mean, I think you had several reporters from the New York Times. We all went down there. People waited for hours outside. I, I, I was down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember. It was very hot, yes. Yeah, yeah, so hot, so humid. I mean, there's like only interrupted by bouts of pounding rain. Yes. Um, and we get inside and it's the exact same rally we've yep. seen a thousand <laughs> times before. And I was, I was just like so mad. I was so irritated. It felt like I'd been duped, right? And like, as, you know, been suckered by the, you know, the promotional showmanship of Donald Trump. <clears throat> and then I like sat back in my seat, you know, behind the risers. I couldn't even see like the new stage or, mm -hmm. um, and realized that every seat in the 20,000 seat arena was packed, right? And like every one of them were, was chanting, build a wall or like lock her up mm -hmm. uh, just as loudly as they had three years earlier. So I kind of was like, well, I wanted to look at it. It sort of forced me to look at it with fresh eyes and say, what is it about the people who are showing up uh, of Trump himself that they want to come over and they, they want to come and see this show over and over and over again? Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, but like for me, like I would normally, I would normally like, sort of treat the people in line at a Trump rally or any political rally. It was you go there, uh, you, you you know, you sort of do your man on the street interview. You, mm -hmm. you go and get the craziest quote, right? Like try wait, let's let's see if someone will call AOC a Muslim who wants to ruin the country, you know, write it down and, you know, and get it and file it and, and on, on your, on your way. But I wanted to like understand them a little bit as people. And, um, you know, what, what shocked me, I guess, about that, about, you know, spending time with them. And, and again, like I didn't actually camp out overnight, but like I was there, you know, till 10, 12 at night, you know, uh, sitting around with them as they, you know, smoked their last cigarettes of the night and like, you know, passed around a lot, shared their beers and, um, you know, uh, but there were, you know, there were a lot of Obama voters, in this mm. group, you know, uh, people who had kind of got caught up in the celebrity of Obama and the enthusiasm and um, his message about, um, you know, I mean, Obama wanted to end the endless wars too, right? I mean, that sort of set up with foreign interventionalism. Um, and they were people who were, you know, I mean, kind of lonely, you know, they had, they were, they were recent retirees with uh, time on their hands, or, you know, maybe they never had kids, or some were estranged from their families, mm -hmm. and going from rally to rally to rally, they, they formed their own little community, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I, a lot of people have made the comparison to the Grateful Dead, Deadheads, uh, I know Bruce Springsteen has a similar following, um, and, you know, they were standing at each other's houses on, you know, on the road or would split hotel rooms. Mm -hmm. And in a weird way, Trump had made their lives bigger, right? And richer. And mm. um, what the book kind of chronicles with them is how really they're misled throughout the year and by, and by this president. And, you know, and by the end, their lives become smaller again. Um, they turn on each other, the people, you know, the uh, Libby who wants to wear a mask to protect mm. her husband who has cancer is mocked by her friends. Mm. Uh, you know, s several of them, you know, uh, Randall dies on the way home in a, in a, in a car accident on the way home uh, from a, from a boat parade. Uh, uh, another dies from COVID. Um, Sandra is um, stops, just turns off Fox news after Fox news calls Arizona and calls the race correctly for Biden. What had been the background noise of her life for the last several years Fox News, she just turns off. So 
her sort of input on news, right? Her, her, her feedback from the news where she's getting her information shrinks. Um, and, um, you know, again, like I, I went, I, I talked to some, I caught up with some of them in Ohio and starting to see some little bit of cracks. I mean, I'm not gonna, you know, pronounce the end of Trumpism by any stretch, mm-hmm. but they're starting to, you know, the people, they, some of them asked me like, you know, what do you, you know, was there Antifa? at the Capitol on January 6th, like that's some of, some of that kind of stuff that um, would, they would never have asked me a year ago. Let me ask you a question just on something you said a second ago about the Obama-Trump crossover mm-hmm. voter. Uh, Trump, uh, Obama obviously did not do rallies the way that Trump does or uh, did. Um, they were, you know, you used the word show before and they really were shows. Um, was it your sense that these folks would have had the same level of devotion to Obama if he had been engaging the same way, or was there something special about Trump to them that yeah. was that was unique? Because celebrity is obviously how Trump got right. to them, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that was what that was what made him different, yeah. uh, and that was what made him not just another Republican and not just another Libertarian and not just a whatever he was at any given moment. Um, but how is it that he got under their skin so deeply? Right. Um, it was his. It was the. Um, you know, the, 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 the non-political correctness stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was, it was that kind of attitude from Trump and his willingness to say and do anything that they uh, very, very quickly interpreted as, um, as a defense for themselves, right? As like, they, he's willing to, uh, he's the bull in the China shop and he's going to break, mm-hmm. you know, he's going to break stuff for, on our behalf, Right. Mm. And, and, you know, I, I talked to some of them who, you know, it wasn't just, it's just, didn't just like empower them politically mm-hmm. um, It empowered their daily lives, you know, um, uh, people who would, you know, speak up at work, right. And, and defend themselves in, 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 in small ways, right. And like what days they want off and willing to like mm-hmm. tell the boss that sort of stuff or stand up for themselves in, um, you know, in relationships and, 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 and those sorts of ways that, that Trump, again, Sandra, you know, told me that, um, you know, a few years ago, she would have paid the Obamacare fine and okay. everything would have been, you know, and gone about her life. But because of what Trump said and Trump's attitude, you know, that she didn't have to do what she didn't want to do. Mm-hmm. And she didn't pay her Obamacare fine. And no one came, no one, no one came looking for her. Right. And, and life moved on. That's really interesting. Um, so basically the message that some folks took was that the, the rules didn't necessarily need to be followed, um, or at least certain rules didn't need to be followed. Um, I'm going to ask you the question that once the motorcycle passes that everyone asks me, and I assume you get asked this too. Uh, do you anticipate that he runs again? Um, probably. I mean, if I'm answering, honestly, like that's, you know, I mean, you know, as well as is better than I, I mean, he want like what he wants to be is, is talked about. Right. Yep. And he wants to be in the headlines, good or bad. Yep. Um, I do think uh, that the folks around him right now have convinced him probably correctly that he needs to wait until at least 2022. Not one, because there's no benefit to say yes or no now, but also there's some pretty important data points coming. Right. I mean, this is the party's chance, their opportunity to redefine themselves post Trump, what whether they're going to do it, how they're going to do it. I mean, those are all huge questions that it will, um, you know, uh, uh, inform Trump's decision. And, and God, what has he made? Tw- two dozen endorsements mm-hmm. from like, several in the U.S. Senate and, I mean, primary challengers in the U.S. Senate. Like, those aren't easy. That's not easy to do, even for a popular former president to, to defeat sitting senators or sitting members of Congress. Um, and, uh, you know, I know he, he did back someone in the Staten Island borough president. I'm not sure what happened on that one. But, like, how these races unfold or what happens in them, like, that's going to be important and, and tell Trump how much, uh, you know, you know, how much goodwill is left for him in the party, too. Do you think that he'll make de- the decision based on conventional metrics like that? Or do you think <laughs> everything else that we know of him and what's going on in his life legally, do you think that might impact him? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good point. It probably depends on what um, you tweet and if you say <laughs> what we all tweet. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about the experience that you're having. You're a first time author. Yeah. You are number three on uh, the New York Times bestseller list, which yeah. is a major accomplishment. Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about your your last couple of weeks because you, we've been having a rolling 
a rolling month and a half or so of Mike Bender. Um, uh, and I think some of that is because of this uh, uh, unique uh, moment you're in where there are two other books that came out um, within the same window. And I, I know there was at least one news story written about the jockeying that the yeah. books were doing. So talk a little bit about what the, for, for folks who are, you know, unused to what this world of, of selling books is like, talk about what your last few weeks have been like. Oh, I mean, last few weeks, it feels like the last, like it's like the last few months or, um, I mean, it was, uh, yes, like I knew going into this we, we, after the election and I took leave that there was, it was going to be a pretty competitive marketplace here on, on, on Trump books and people that, uh, other journalists and reporters and authors, I really respect and know that, um, you know, and, and, uh, uh, bestsellers, Pulitzer Prize winners, right. I mean, that are well recognized in our industry for, um, for, for quality work and, uh, you know, I didn't, I don't have a show. I don't have a TV, like all the sort of things that sort of normally sell can help you sell books. I don't have a TV show. I don't have like a major social media presence. I don't have, a, I, this is my first book. So I felt like a lot of pressure to, uh, to do the reporting here. Right. I mm -hmm. mean, that the only way that like, I had to let the reporting do the work for me here. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, so we kind of, usually the, um, the the publicity for a book is like the week it's published and you kind of put your go on the shows you put out some scoops and like give it your best shot um we weren't sure exactly our first public we weren't sure when the other books were going to come out mm -hmm. uh our first book or our first our initial publication date was august 20th mm -hmm. um and we were going to just say we just said like we're going to start there's enough in this book Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm represented by the, the, the guys at Javelin, Matt Latimer and Keith Urban. Closure, so am I. So, right. yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And everyone else in Washington. And everyone right? else in Washington, right. But they're, I mean, they're, um, I was really impressed on like how, uh, on the PR part of this from them. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, they recognized that there was a lot in this book and that we could start acting like mm -hmm. the book was coming out, you know, months earlier. I mean, we literally put out our first scoop on right. the book uh, on June 1st that, mm -hmm. uh, that Hannity had written one of Trump's final TV ads. Right. And then steadily, like, then we just started putting stuff out every few days and for, for until the next six weeks. And meanwhile, um, like we realized that like some of the other books had moved their publications dates up and then we moved ours up. Uh, and there was all this leapfrogging um, until um, we landed on uh, July 13th uh, along with another competitor and then another competitor came out yesterday. Um, and then I, you know, I literally woke up, I would just like wake up in sweats, like wondering, like thinking like another um, book has come out. I, you know, um, it was kind of driving myself crazy, but, um, but I don't know, it, it, it ended up being really fun. And like the reception, we got a lot of traction on some of the scoops we were putting out and, um, and, you know, and, and, and like I said, Latimer realized very quickly that, I mean, the first thing people have to, understand that you have a book right mm -hmm. before they can feel like they want to buy the book mm -hmm. so we had to do all that work to get people to realize that there was a book coming that was worthwhile that they hadn't you know maybe thought of before um and i got i mean it's just been really an overwhelming response i mean to be number three on the bestseller list tonight is um is is far more success than i had really had hoped i mean i really i filed this book hoping i wasn't going to embarrass myself and my family that who had like, um, you know, shouldered so much of the burden, you know, during a pandemic uh, mm -hmm. to help me, to help create space for me to, to finish this. Um, so I just am so excited for, for them and for like, I, I, you know, to get, to get texts and like pictures of them holding the book and for how excited like my family is. And um, it's just been um, really, really nice. So talk, talk a bit about those scoops, talk a bit about some of the news nuggets in the book, and then I want to move to specific storylines, but, but just talk about for, for people who haven't bought it yet, um, yeah. what some of the highlights of the last few weeks have been. Sure. I mean, the, so yeah, the first one was that Hannity wrote one of Trump's ads uh, right. in the final days. Right. Uh, some of the ones that got uh, a lot more a bigger attention were um, that, uh, that Trump had got into a debate with John Kelly, his then chief of staff in 2018, over um, uh, what Trump said were the, some, some of the good things that Hitler did. Um, uh, when he was in charge, um, and that and obviously got a lot of attention. Um, 
one of the things I think my scoops did were, was really introduce the country kind of for the, to the first time to, to Mark Milley, uh, mm-hmm. the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the top general of the U.S. military, who was what we didn't really know uh, in a fulsome way before was, was what a guardrail he had been behind the scenes on when Trump was literally um, telling them that he wanted Americans shot. I mean, mm-hmm. actually repeatedly telling them, his military leaders, his, his, his national security advisors, that, uh, that Americans peacefully protesting civil rights abuses mm-hmm. should be shot in the leg or shot in their foot or should have their skulls cracked so that he could feel like mm-hmm. uh, he was in charge and, and you know, that, that he was in control. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those, are, those, are, those are some of the big ones. Um, you know, one my, oh, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, like, one of my, I mean, the, the, I, there was a, a kind of a bipartisan, rare bipartisan moment on, on Twitter when I uh, put out one of the um, uh, scenes where, where Millie had um, yelled at Stephen Miller. Stephen Miller was trying, basically egging on Trump, telling him that cities were burning in mm-hmm. the, in, amidst these uh, George Floyd, the protests of uh, George Floyd being killed. And Millie, uh, you know, uh, a decorated army general uh, who's led, you know, troops in Afghanistan and Iraq, turned around in his seat, pointed at Stephen Miller and said, shut the fuck up, Stephen, because he had the data. He knew that there was not, you know, cities were not burning. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone, you know, Republicans and Democrats were very excited to, um, uh, that, that someone had talked to Stephen Miller like that. Uh, and then, of course, the, there's the scene with Milley, um, very, you know, uh, pointing to the portrait of Abraham Lincoln over uh, Trump's shoulder in the Oval Office and saying, that man, Mr. President, had an insurrection. What what we have is a protest, um, bringing some historical context, uh, you know, to the moment for for this yeah. president. Um, I want you to um, I want you to talk for a minute just about the challenges of doing this book during the pandemic, which mm-hmm. um, I don't think you had anticipated when you first started the project. Am I correct about that, that the pandemic had not begun or I don't hundred percent. I mean, I, yeah. I agreed to do this, uh, back in the like late summer, fall of 2019. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's hard for people to remember it. I don't even really, um, I, it's hard for me to even acknowledge, but there was a time between, um, Mueller, the Mueller report coming out mm-hmm. and Trump calling Ukraine and, and asking for help, uh, a little help with Biden, um, that things were kind of, uh, predictable, right? I mean, uh, I have a baby at home. We have I'm married to a a, a well-known uh, White House reporter, Ashley Parker, um, um, a competitor, and we were both getting home at six o'clock every day to let the nanny go during this time, right? Like, I agreed to do this book, thinking like, okay, like I'm going to be covering the campaign in 2020. I'll just sort of like sweep up all my reporting from the Wall Street Journal, make a book, and like, you know, have some fun first person scenes if possible and, and, and go from there. Uh, then he got impeached, you know, then the pandemic, then the, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the protests and the economic collapse. So like, we didn't really cover a campaign until the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of this, all this, like I had to almost start from zero when the campaign was done. And of course my agents had wanted the book, you know, on, you know, November. Before that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just, I love Matt and Keith dearly. They were great um, to work with. I mean, but I, you know, I've been telling them all year, right? Like, this is not going to happen sooner. Like, it's not going to happen. You know, I'm not going to have a book in November. And the election's called, we get on the phone and it's, you know, we know, we know you're concerned about, you need more time for the book, but Mm -hmm. is there any way you can do it faster? Right? Like, like they knew, like, they knew what was happening, right? Like, it was all of this stuff. And, um, with with our competitors and you know Mm -hmm. uh, but the hardest part was really really was I mean it was the pandemic everyone's lives had been turned upside down right I mean everybody's routines were disrupted uh stress levels um increased on everybody and then here I come on top of it all to um to my wife to my parents right to my sisters to my aunts and uncles saying like I know you, you have your, your, your burden is extra heavy, but can I, can you take some of mine too, to, uh, help me, uh, clear a weekend 
to to you know to write or to clear a few nights to 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 report. Um, I mean, my mom drove across the country in the middle of the pandemic to to bail me out. I, I flew her in another time wow. uh, toward the end. Um, yeah, so like to see them, like you know, even just on Tuesday last Tuesday, like holding up the book and like how excited. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody was uh, my sister Monique told me that it felt like a baby had been born in the family and we have a big family like I have six sisters I my mom's one of 11 we have a big family already like um you know um so it was it was just it's, it was just really nice and um I mean the, the, the response has been um so, so wonderful and, and hearing from old friends and you know like the 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 reporters I grew up with and the writers I respected who who say how much they like the book and and are texting me like different scenes in it and it's just been really really nice so thanks. can you talk a little a little bit about who you found to be the dominant figures in this white house uh in the final year including with the campaign advisors but but who yeah. are the dominant voices around trump in the, in these final days of his presidency yeah it's a good question i mean it's always changing right i mean i have one scene in the book here where um it's it's like in the middle of the summer early in the summer uh, Trump is sitting around with his campaign team. They're going over polling, and uh, in the Oval Office, they op- he opens the door for like the next meeting. And in walks Scott Atlas, right? No one knows who Scott Atlas is mm-hmm. yet, uh, other than some people who'd seen him on Fox News. We didn't know he was advising behind the scenes at all. And Trump tells him, "Hey, Scott, like tell these guys what you told me. Tell tell them what you told me." And he says, "Okay, uh, well, I told them that the pandemic will be over by September, right? And like they can't." believe it that this is what it, it, these are the people that, that that trump is bringing in and and just trying to have his own opinion sort of re- reinforced here um I, it just sort of changes right i mean in um i don't know it's a really good question i mean if we're talking about like the the i mean millie is a very strong voice with trump i mean mm-hmm. even and i think up until um you know, it, it starts to disintegrate in June, but even then, when Trump wants to use the Insurrection Act, and Millie's telling him no, Millie, I mean, Millie's basically telling him point blank, like this is that's not what it's for, right? I mean, the we bring in the National Guardsmen who are trained as quasi law enforcement to um, patrol protesters. That's what they're for, not the 82nd Airborne who is trained to to kill and take land. These are very different, you know, scenarios. Um, but even as he's telling them no, I mean, my reporting was that even then, Trump is telling people, "Well, get Millie. What does Millie think? Like, what's Millie say about this? Let me know what. Get Millie on the phone, right? Like he's still in that kind of mode of uh, uh, my generals, you um, mm-hmm. know, type atmosphere. Um, you know, and then I mean, toward the end, I mean, I think this is one of the, it's kind of one of the sad parts of the end of the book, and what, I, I think what helps kind of explain January sixth to a degree is like these people who were in a position, and no one can ever tell Trump no, right? Like Trump's going to do what he's going to do, right? I have this scene with Melania where she's trying to keep the White House party, the election day party. That was a great scene. That was a great scene. You know, where Trump has to call her. She, she's in charge of the White House and and, and um, uh, events, right? Yep. In the event space. Yeah, the and first lady is typically in charge of that aspect of the White House. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she keeps telling G- uh, Meadows no, that she doesn't want to, have this party because of COVID, right? She's concerned about COVID. So it falls to Trump days, just a few days before the election to call his wife from Air Force One and say he wants to have the party. And she just throws up her hands and said, fine, do it. You're going to do it anyway, you know? And so I think that is sort of like a big takeaway on Trump is like, he's going to do it anyway. These people who are, are kind of up in arms about why mm-hmm. Millie hasn't, you know, uh, wasn't shooting up flares to the American public at the time or Pence or Rana. But again, like Millie, Pence, Rana, these are people who, who told Trump no and to a degree survived, right? And could, maybe Pence, maybe not so much, but, but Rana and I think, and Millie are, th- are two characters in the book that certainly uh, did. Uh, and, um, uh, and Trump to a degree still kept them pretty close. Um, but after the election, um, they see that Trump is not, you know, foaming at the mouth. He's not screaming about ballots. He's not, you know, he's not losing his mind. So you mean, they, you mean immediate, immediately after the election? Correct. Yes, yes, yes. Like in the days after the election, yep. days after like, like the first couple of weeks of November. Yep. So they kind of start looking at their own, making their own plans, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Ron starts talking to him about running 
for a third term. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it, Jared is who, you know, for all of the criticism of Jared, like Jared is one of the people who had some success keeping Trump focused and keeping mm-hmm. uh, some of the grifters, for lack of a better word, away from him. Mm-hmm. Not perfect, but I mean, he had some success. Jared sees what's, you know, Jared is off in the Middle East and not going to argue with his father-in-law over this. But their takeaway is that he's going to find his way to conceding. He's not, uh, again, he's not screaming. He's not foaming at the mouth. He'll be okay. He'll find his own way. But like giving him space only creates an opening, as Mm -hmm. we find out, for Rudy Giuliani's, the Sidney Powell's Mm -hmm. to come in and tell him exactly what he wants to hear. And suddenly we have, you know, two parallel legal teams descending on Georgia, um, one from the White House and the other saying they're from the White House, but both, um, you know, both both blessed by Trump, you know? Um, I want to rewind a second back to, and you touched on this, but I just want to drill down a bit, the events of June 1st, which mm-hmm. were were clearly the beginning of the end, or I, I, I wouldn't say the beginning, but it was it was the middle of the end or the end of the end between Trump and Milley, um, even if they continue dealing with each other. Um, talk a bit about why that moment was so jarring. I think not just for Milley, but for Mark Esper, um, mm-hmm. yeah. the Secretary of Defense, for Bill Barr, yeah. the Attorney General, um, you know, all, all of whom had tried to deter Trump from using the yeah. Insurrection Act. Yeah. Um, talk a bit about that day and what that day felt like to all of those folks. Yeah, no, I, it's it's a good question. I appreciate it. It's a, a important part of the book and and the year. Um, and I'm glad you brought up Barr and Esper too. Esper particularly, um, he doesn't get enough credit really um, for um, for telling Trump no for being one of those guardrails. Mm-hmm. But the difference was was that by this point, Trump had already kind of dismissed him. Right, mm-hmm. I mean, he was barely hanging on. Yep. Um, so so Trump was more likely to lash out at Esper than he was. Mm-hmm. against Millie. Millie's w- word carried a little bit more weight. Same with Barr, really. I mean, Barr's um, relationship with, with, with Trump takes a turn, like, in the second half of the year. It wasn't really at this point, you know, he was, he, uh, Barr was still really important person around Trump at this point. And um, one thing I'll describe that's in the book is, is these are all, um, again, a lot of people viewed themselves as truth tellers to Trump. Mm-hmm. Um incorrectly right it's uh, a really important point yeah i mean if people you would sort of like hedge their bets with trump or or hedge their advice uh wrap it in all of these qualifications um to the point where right like trump has uh a 10 different you know uh things to grab onto except no right mm-hmm. um millie Barr, and esper are are pretty straight with trump you know, um, as straight with Trump as, as you can be um, any president, really, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's not easy thing to do to speak truth to power, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and put yourself at risk like that. Um, but one thing that struck me was, was just how consistently you had to keep your guard up with Trump. June 1, they, they have these meetings in the Oval Office. Trump wants to use the Insurrection Act, wants to bring in uniformed military to, to, it, mm-hmm. to, to put down protests. Active right? duty military. Yeah. Active duty military. That's exactly right. And uh, there's a there's a meltdown on a conference call that was reported in real time with governors. Um, and then Millie and Barr, uh, you, you, you know, at, at this point, Millie is Trump is telling everybody that Millie's in charge. Mm-hmm. Right. Millie is he's the top general in the U.S. military. He, he's not in charge of any. He's not a command in command of any troops. He's mm-hmm. an advisor to the president and advisor to the other, you know, uh, um, military branches, chiefs of staff of the military branches, tells Trump this, re- this repeatedly. They have, a, mm-hmm. they, they have an explosion over this, right? That, that, that Trump views this as, um, a, as disloyal, that Millie's being disloyal to him and, and, and how dare he tell Trump what his constitutional duties are um, as, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The three men go their separate ways uh, uh, in the afternoon. Uh, Esper goes back to the Pentagon, Barr and Millie go to the FBI headquarters in, in, in DC. That's basically a kind of a command post mm-hmm. uh, to watch over protests. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lull in the action in the afternoon. Okay. Some of the communications goes down uh, and they're all kind of looking around at each other. Uh, Millie's in his combat fatigues. He'd always planned to go out and visit with the guardsmen that night. 
uh, Barr had known that they were going to push the perimeter out from the White House even further, closer to St. John's. He had planned to go and, and, and inspect that at some point anyway. And Millie says something offhand, just, to, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, joking around. I was like, let's go, let's go see what Trump's up to. Let's go grab a bite. Let's go see what's up at the White House. Now, no one's going to, like, go grab a bite at the White House, right? Like, the, I don't even think the mess is open at this point. But, but Barr goes along with it, and they go to the White House. And, and again, they were going there anyway. The first thing they do is, in fact, go to um, uh, Lafayette Square, where there's some National Guardsmen stationed and uh, lined up, and Millie starts talking to them. There's testimony to this degree that he tells them that they're there to protect First Amendment rights. That's all they're there for that night. Uh, bars looking around. Um, uh, uh, I think it's in the book. Um, I, I was told by other people that, um, you know, there's that scene where Millie takes a phone call where it looks yep. like he's commanding troops. Yep. Um, it was his wife. <laughs> he's like, you're on live TV. What the hell are you doing there? Right. And, and this is what Millie tells other people this later on. Um, but the next thing they know, they go into the white house and like unbeknownst to them, there's this whole plan to, uh, march over to St. John's and right. And like what had started as a lark really is like a, is, is like a, what the hell, let's just go over to the white house moment. Uh, we, hours later, they're in the middle of one of the most controversial, um, political moments one of the most controversial photo ops, um, you know, in certainly in our time and, you know, one that they'll be talking about for, for years. It's funny. Um, in my reporting, and, and this matches your reporting in the book, but I'm just wondering if, if you agree with my characterization mm-hmm. of this. Um, the the arrival of this group of people at the church was sort of a Geraldo safe moment where they all realized mm-hmm. there was no plan. There was So the plan was literally to walk, and yeah. that was it. There was yeah. no plan to inspect the damage. There was no plan for Trump to give remarks. There was, um, there was, there was yeah. really nothing developed. Um, how much well, of that, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I just, yes, that is, um, that, that Mark, that, that matches with my reporting too. And I should just stop here to say that almost all of this is a result of your reporting. I mean, this is a big jump off. I mean, whatever. I mean, there's many moments in this book that, that I jump off of your reporting. Um, we all jump off each other's reporting, but, but thank you. Um, Yes. But but particularly now, I mean, he is so upset about your report about him in the bunker the nights before. We, yeah, we should we should fill in the, the folks who are watching who don't either don't remember or weren't paying attention in, in that level of detail at the time. Yeah. Uh, the Friday night before Trump walked to Lafayette Square, um, the, uh, the Friday night before the Sunday night when there was the, the burning of the basement of St. John's Church, which is where he walked to uh, across Lafayette Park, um, Trump was taken to the bunker uh, below the White House, which is extremely rarely used. And it was done after a barricade at the Treasury Department, which is right next door to the White House, uh, was pierced. Um, and Trump was, uh, my colleague Peter Baker and I reported on it, Trump was um, not happy. Uh, I'm downplaying it. You have, a, you have a very vivid scene about his unhappiness. Yeah, I mean, this, this, I mean, talk about shocking moments in reporting this book. When I was asking people about like, what, what their memories were of this time, I was shocked. I was shocked that that the first answer from so many people was how wound up Trump was for days about who leaked that detail to the New York Times about how much time he spent on it, how much time he required Mark Meadows to spend on it, and then how it filtered down and 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 it, it affected all of these other decisions. I mean, it just you know, it, it was it was it was stunning to me, and and I mean, just a crucial piece of reporting. Um, um, well, thank you. Um, uh, it was a team effort. Um, he, um, uh, but that that whole weekend, uh, at least in my experience, and certainly as you presented in the book, mm-hmm. was the fulcrum shift uh, in 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 for for in certain ways for the rest of the year. Certainly in terms of Trump on race and in terms of Trump on on uh, violence and unrest in cities throughout the rest of the summer. Um, one person we have not talked about yet is Jared Kushner. And he is a very dominant player throughout the book. Um, you uh, describe in, in detail how he got Trump to hire Brad Parscale. Mm-hmm. You describe in detail the um, uh, rather um, smaller than expected Tulsa rally um, mm-hmm. uh, in June. Um, and 
you uh, describe how Brad was replaced. Um, talk about the role that Kushner played in it, not just the final year, but throughout the entire presidency yeah. for Trump. And then talk about your understanding of where that relationship is now. Yeah. Um, thanks. I, I haven't really talked anywhere about Jared, and you're right. I mean, he's, he's a central figure here. Here's the place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. Un- um, unburden yourself. <laughs> um, I mean, he is right. He's the um, he's the he's he's the he's the chief of staff. He's the campaign manager, right? He's the senior advisor. He's all, he's he's there all the time in every in every decision. And um, you know, it starts. I, and, and I and I try to explain his role. Um, I have an early scene with him. He, he gets involved kind of late in 2016. Um, once, uh, once he sees that, you know, kind of Trump's uh, resonance and, uh, what someone else had sort of described to me as kind of a Schitt's Creek moment in Iowa where him and he and, uh, and Ivanka are at the caucuses and, you know, in really typical Trump world, like nothing has, um, been planned or, you know, done ahead of time. There's all of these other candidates with, um, you know, paraphernalia, stickers and brochures. They have nothing and all and, and right. And a bunch of people. I mean, there's a lot of interest in Trump. They want to know how to caucus. Right. So Jared has to pull out his phone and, and Google, how do you caucus? Right. And Ivanka's horrified and calls her dad like, you know, and this is where, you know, it's my reporting where, where, where Jared starts to turn on Corey Lewandowski with the campaign yes. manager at the time and, yes. and an ubiquitous presence around Trump from them from, from here on out. Uh, but also interesting is, is where um, this is the point where um, Jared starts looking for replacements and the name he gets back is Bill Stepien, mm-hmm. which it doesn't work at the time, but obviously Bill comes back um, and is in his campaign manager in the final months of the, of the campaign because of Jared, right? I mean, it's, it's uh, he had, what I mean, he Brad had thought. My reporting was that is that Brad had often described himself as a member of the family because mm-hmm. of his relationship with Jared. I mean, he viewed himself as another son-in-law, as another one of mm-hmm. uh, Trump's boys. So he's he's um, you know, he's crushed when Jared comes into the office and very coldly and bloodlessly just axes him. Right? He's not fired; he's demoted, but it's effectively mm-hmm. uh, an axing and. Um, and replacing him with Stepien, who, um, who is like the is like the flip side of the coin, right? And one one of the things I try to do in the book here is like, you know, the the you have Jared and Brad are kind of the two ids of Trump, the the sort of like uh, authoritarian uh, corporate, you know, mm-hmm. Jared uh, demeanor and that kind of pop culture marketing showmanship of Brad, mm-hmm. um, and those two things never really resolve themselves. Um, and, and with Trump and certainly with Jared, right? I mean, Jared brings in Brad, uh, to build a campaign, which is a $2 billion operation effectively. Um, and Brad does what he knows how to do is he builds a PR machine. He builds an Mm -hmm. advertising agency. That's what Brad does. He then, you know, and does pretty well. Um, but then in the final days, Jared brings in Stepien, who's more like an accountant, right? To, to run this pop culture marketing uh, operation and you know and it doesn't really work bill tries to do his own thing um tries to build his own shop um and then suddenly right we have like these the scenes in the book where, where jared is trying to like you know then he's kind of distancing himself from bill um trying to you know uh play peacemaker i mean him of all people trying to you know bring in um make sure they're coordinating with ronna mcdaniel over the republican party um, and, until the end where, uh, you know, Jared kind of washes his hands of it all. Right. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he's you mean right. At, you mean right after the election when he just, started, right. I mean, I yeah. mean, I'm talking November 3rd, yeah. not November 7th, yeah. right. Yeah. He's writing on the wall. He starts looking at places and, and, yeah. and talking to Ivanka about moving down to Florida before the election's called. Right. I mean, he sees what directions it's going. Um, and right. And that's the direction it is now. I mean, my reporting is that, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that mm-hmm. Don Jr. has kind of taken over the role as the as the family advisor instead of Jared. Uh, I think that's maybe a little bit willing. You know, you know, both Trump and Jared are probably uh, you know willing to you know let that play out for now. Um, and, um, and yeah, I mean, Jared's just a few miles down the down the coast in Florida, so uh, not too far away. Um. 
if Trump were to run again, who do you see as the doing this with him if he were to do it again? Is there anybody who you think from last time would be there again? Oh, gosh. I mean, the answer is yes, right? I mean, there's no... It's always there's, yes. It's always yeah, yes. there are no people, new people yeah. in Trump world. That, you know, it's... Um, but it's but who... I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, uh, you know, I have some... You know, Susie Wiles is the person right now down in Florida. She not only won... I mean, she won Florida twice. I mean, people don't know Susie Wiles, but I can make a straight face argument here that she's the most important Republican in Florida, the biggest battleground since Jeb Bush. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, She was with Rick Scott. She was with Ron DeSantis. She did both Trump campaigns in Florida. Not only won Florida, but she was the only one, only state Trump won twice and increased his margin in. Uh, People have told me, openly wondered with me whether or not they would have won in 2020 had Susie been in charge from the start. Like, you know, it's wild speculation in 2020. uh, And it's a long way to go till 2024. Uh, Let me ask you a question, though, just while you said that, and I should just point out to the audience that you're a former Florida-based reporter, so you know of what you speak about the state. Um, Do you think that the campaign apparatus is ultimately why Trump lost, or is Trump ultimately why Trump lost? Yeah. I mean, it's on Trump. I mean, it's it's all on Trump. I mean, I, I did have people tell me, a lot of people want to blame COVID. Mm-hmm. for why he lost. And that's certainly, you know, a valid argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the moment where uh, he lost this race was in Cleveland at the debate. Mm-hmm. And, that first debate. Uh, correct. And yep. just did a performance that was uh, devoid of anything, um, reminded people of all the reasons they didn't like him and none mm-hmm. of the reasons that they did like him. And you and go into that in depth in the book. Yeah, and in in a in a in a in a way in a, in a in a critical time in our country's history, right? And and an emergency on so many different levels um, in the moment for the nation. Um, uh, but that's on Trump, right? I mean, that's not because of like uh, you know this one or that one running the campaign, it's right? And I say that as someone who wrote an entire chapter on Bill Stefan. So um, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, someone had so, so someone inside the the. It, the Trump world, a very senior person had said that if it wasn't COVID, it would have been something else, right? Like if it, you know, if it wasn't, right, if it wasn't, he would now, Trump was not well served by the constant infighting underneath him. There's no question about that. Um, But again, even that at the end of the day, that that's, that's Trump's responsibility, right? He he tends, it's weird how that follows him wherever he goes. Um, In my, in my history of covering with him, there's, there is always that infighting. Um, It's, it's almost as if it's a feature um, and not a bug. Um, I want to uh, turn to audience questions um, uh, in the in the remaining roughly 15 minutes that we have left. The first one is, uh, were there moments covering Trump and the White House that you felt exhausted or wanted to give up? Mm-hmm. And, and, and was there more than one moment? <laughs> Can you enumerate them all? Oh, my God. I mean, yes. I mean, uh, it's hard to kind of pinpoint one specific one. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I will say like, I was able to last longer than a lot of people and I'm not like holding myself up. I don't, you know, I think, um, uh, I, I think that probably speaks less of me than, than other people. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I covered Trump in 2016 with a team at the wall street journal. Yep. Uh, I think there's five of us and I was the only one that went into the white house. All four of my teammates were like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. Right. Like it's the, and it was the, it, the problem was the unpredictability. Mm-hmm. that you are constantly covering Trump, you're, you're, you're particularly in a presidential candidate, and my God, in the White House, when the fate of the, you know, the, the most powerful country is, is, is in his, you know, on a Twitter button on his phone, just at his beck and call around the clock, right? I mean, and a guy who wants to make news around the clock, it's mm-hmm. exhausting. It, it's, it, and, and everyone has their different breaking points. Um, I'll, I, I mean, I'll, I will say like mine was getting toward the end of, of, end of the, end of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a lot. I mean, I, you know, I had a lot of stuff going on too. Like I knew this book was coming up. I was, uh, you know, we were all, we were all, we're already working. This is what I tell my bosses is like covering Trump is like three new cycles in one day, mm-hmm. right? It's like three days in one, except they only paid me for one of them um, <laughs> and expected me to work all three. 
And, and then on top of it, like I had the book coming up, I was, I, I mean, I, that I was really feeling, it wasn't so much about Trump, I think, and, and, and a particular moment, I know that was the question, but, but that was for me, um, like putting the pressure on myself. Um, and, and I, I was, um, and they knew that if he won, it would, it would actually make the book, I thought the book was going to make the book a lot more interesting, right? Like how the hell did he do mm-hmm. this again, right? Mm-hmm. Like what was going on? And we, and we did barely, the campaign had ba- really barely been covered all year because of everything else going on. Um, and, um, and, uh, you know, and how do you walk away from that story if he's wins, right? Like I knew um, I was going to have, you know, I was going to keep covering him in the white house. Uh, and I was really struggling with what, what I was going to do if he won. Um, and, you know, where I was going to get a break and what, you know, how that was going to um, play out. So that's a long answer. And without a very specific, you know, um, point, pin, you know, pinpoint, like, there, there, you know, there was no single thing. It was more of like, just the, you know, five years of it um, was catch, starting to catch up to me. The fatigue, which happens in any, in any White House, but this one was um, had accelerant thrown all over it. Um, this next question is, what was covering the COVID outbreak after the Amy Coney Barrett nomination like? Mm. And then was it the scariest moment of 2020 for you both, meaning us both, just for audience members who don't know the chronology, the Amy Coney Barrett nomination uh, was celebrated in a Rose Garden ceremony uh, on September 26th, which was three days before the first debate. Um, it was believed to have been a super spreader event. Um, people were not wearing masks. Lots of people got sick afterwards with COVID. Um, and and uh, among them later that week who got sick were Hope Hicks, the president's uh, top advisor, and then the, the president and first lady uh, as well. So uh, what was covering that, that outbreak like? Um, it was, I mean, it was bonkers, right? I mean, my, I, I I had so many like near close calls with this, with, 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 with Trump world here. I had, I was in Ronna McDaniel's office. Uh, remember the first scare she had like mm-hmm. right at the beginning of the, mm-hmm. of the pandemic where um, she thought she had COVID. This was a weekend in March, just for those who, who don't yeah. remember, there were, there were several events going on at Mar-a-Lago at the same time. One of which was an RNC fundraising event. One was Kim Guilfoyle's birthday event. I think president Bolsonaro was there right. uh, the same weekend. Yep. Uh, and that was, I think the weekend you're talking about when. Yeah, exactly. Sick, yeah. Um, so I thought maybe I, you know, there was a chance I'd caught it then and there was like no tests or anything back then. Um, and that was where I really got a taste of what things might look like because I had mm-hmm. to like, you know, shut down everything, right? There was no um, no help for the family. I couldn't bring in people. I had to like, quarant- you know, all the quarantine stuff. Uh, and then on the, the Rose Garden ceremony, I was supposed to have covered that live. But um, I didn't the news, well, I, I'm trying to remember exactly what happened. One of my colleagues had pre-written the story. And then I think, again, it was you and Peter who broke that it was going to be Amy Coney Barrett. Um, so like yeah, the, I don't remember. But I think that news, yeah, like he, he'd done actually a pretty good job of keeping the first two nominees yep. Yep. Uh, under wraps, but this one broke a day early. So we knew it was um, Amy Coney Barrett mm-hmm. and we had the story already out. So like, um, there's no point in going. There's no point in going. The journal no. doesn't have a paper on Sunday. Yep. I could do it from home. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a pandemic. Um, and like, yeah. And then, um, <laughs> And then I was actually in the debate hall for the Cleveland debate. Again, before we knew um, that that uh, Rose Garden event a couple of days earlier had been a super spreader, I was one, like, there was no one in the debate hall, right? Like usually these things are, the presidential debates, thousands of people are in a, an arena at a college or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this one was a, maybe a couple hundred. I mean, there were a handful of reporters there. And the only reason I was there was because... Um, C-SPAN, uh, Steve Scully had asked me to come and help him do a pre, pre, you know, pregame show. And, um, you know, and then we find out later that, right, that, that Trump and like a lot of the people there had been infected, already infected with COVID. So um, personally, like, I, I felt like I kind of like narrowly avoided it a few times. Um, and gosh, I don't know, what was it like for you, Megan? I mean, it felt like there's so much of this administration that was just like from the get-go, right? It was like covering the Russia investigation where it was mm-hmm. huge things happening on like a moment to moment basis. Constant, constant. Yeah. yeah. And you were the one breaking like a lot of the stuff on Russia and a lot of the stuff on the uh, uh, people who were, um, who were sick at the white house too. 
our our colleague Jen Jacobs at, at Bloomberg broke that yeah. Oprah was sick, and that was the sort of the the beginning of yeah. realizing the president was probably sick. I, I um I mean I was in New York. There was never a question of whether I was going to be um uh, covering Amy Coney Barrett that I remember. Um, and I was never, there was never a discussion about going to the debate because there was such a limited number of people who could go um, to that first debate. But, and I think the second one too, but I do remember when Trump got sick, which was that week. And then I have a question for you from the audience related yeah. to that. But, um, but I remember um, uh, when his positive, the news of the positive test um, or the PCR test came back at around one in the morning on Friday, October 2nd. Uh, and then I think I didn't sleep for about five days because yeah. I was, um, look, he is, he's a, however old he was, man, uh, years old man as he was then. Uh, he's not in great physical condition. Um, uh, one point that has been made to me by a, a, a public health official uh, who shall remain nameless is that Trump's, um, Trump's first tests showed he was not producing antibodies. But he was sick. And that actually suggests that his body was not launching its own defense. So those medicines that they gave him were, were vital. Um, so yeah, that was, um, that was quite a five days. Um, I do think too, I mean, I, I, I feel like um, when I was, I was so pissed when you were reporting some of that stuff, even just like a couple of months ago about how sick Trump really was. So I had some that like, you know, it was like, there's such good reporters around Trump, like you and Swan and Dossie and, and Ashley, like, like, you know, it was just nothing was ever going to hold for this book, I felt like. But and you, um, you still I, had a bunch holds. So look at it. Look at look at that. <laughs> you did well. We I go. do feel like uh, I feel like this book gives a good, pretty good uh, in-depth accounting of how sick he was and add some details mm -hmm. to it. But I feel like we still don't know um, the full scope of that. I think there's a lot that we don't know. And actually, that leads me to a question I want to ask before I get to the rest of the audience questions. And I'll ask it quickly because we're a little low on time. Um, one figure we didn't talk about is Mark Meadows. And, um, I, you know, he is he is a constant in the book. He's a constant mm -hmm. in the final in the final year. What's your opinion of um the role he played um, in one direction or the other, you know, you were talking about guardrails. Yeah. What was he? Was he a guardrail? Was he an enabler? Was he both? What was your yep. determination? I think he was both. I mean, um, I think Meadows loves the game, right? I mean, at, at his core, he loves the, the, the political game. He loves being in the mix. Uh, and I think that's why he did this job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, He's a conservative. I'm not. I'm not trying to question his 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 um his beliefs. No, I don't think, I, this, I'm not asking about ideology. I'm just asking yeah, about yeah. the role he played with Trump. Exactly, and um and he wanted to be close to the close to that center of power. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, I I think the 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 best Meadows scene I have in here, the most illustrative uh, scene I have in here, is at is at Walter Reed that weekend, where right Trump is putting on airs of of how. Uh, he wants to project uh, his own strength and that he's not as sick as he is uh, and carries his own bag into mm -hmm. the hospital. Mm -hmm. As soon as he gets in, he drops the bag exhausted and everyone around him instinctively takes a step back, mm -hmm. right? I mean, he's sick with COVID and, mm -hmm. right, and um, just sort of naturally uh, react, people naturally react that way. It's a few beats uh, of awkwardness there until Meadows as you know, says, so kind of screw it, and leans forward, picks up the bag, and carries it into Trump's room. And um, you know, Trump tells him later, you know, that, that that was the moment, Mark, that I knew you were my guy, right? I mean, this is the sort of like level of loyalty that that this president is looking for on a pretty constant basis. Um, this is a very good question. What is the Trump-Pence relationship like now? Gosh, I don't know. That's an amazing question, and like. Eh, it's it's stunning to me. I mean, I talked to Trump a little bit about it. I interviewed him a couple of times down in Mar-a-Lago for the book. And um, I mean, I'm just stunned that they're speaking, right? And um, if I was to interview Pence, I would ask him, like, why he doesn't need an apology from Trump, why he didn't ask for an apology from Trump, right? I mean, Pence's life was in danger. His family's life was in danger. And the president, for a while, did nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's the same question I asked Trump too. I mean, if, if, if you're Trump and believe that you've just been betrayed to the point of essentially treason by your own vice president, like, don't you need an apology mm -hmm. before you 
you know, reignite this relationship again. Um, and I asked Trump this a couple of di- couple times in a di- couple of different ways. And finally, he just told me, he's like, no, uh, I, I don't talk to him about January 6th. Well, that's an answer. Um, <laughs> I, another question is, you answered this a little bit earlier, but just to be a little more specific about what you're watching for in the run-up to the midterms in terms of Trump exerting influence. And you talked about Senate races. You talked about him weighing in, even in, yeah. in Staten Island with the Vita Facella race. But yeah. um, how aggressively do you expect him to play? How exp- uh, aggressively do you expect him to campaign for other people? What do you What do you think we will see? I think year? we're going to see, I think he's going to be pretty aggressive. I think he's mm-hmm. going to, um, uh, he wants to find one person in Wyoming to back in, in um, instead of a field against mm-hmm. Lynn Cheney. I think we'll see him campaign in, uh, in Alaska. And then I'm going to uh, not even attempt to butcher the, the primary candidate name there. Yeah. Um, I know who you're referring to, and I, I don't think I can actually help you. So, okay. just um, uh, you know, I think he'll go up there. I mean, I, I think he's going to be pretty active. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's pushing his chips on this. We've already seen him go to, I mean, the, the event in Ohio uh, last month was to back a, you know, a, um, a primary candidate against, you know, not just a sitting member of Congress, um, but a former Ohio state star. I'm from, I'm from Ohio. I know what I speak here. Like that's not he voted against him in impeachment, which is the Correct. key, the key yeah. thing to bear in mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the whole, I mean, that's the whole thing, the thread line through all of these um, yep. primary challenges. Um, but I do, you know, but more even than that, uh, you know, it sounds sort of silly, but I'm going to be looking for watching the results, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we can see, we, we see all the polls. We've never really seen, Trump actively try to campaign for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, his camp his, his campaigning in 2018 was more about himself than really about uh, you know. So, so what does it mean when 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 Trump is actually um, like not on the ballot but on the ballot, right? And uh, I do think you know whatever the Republicans decide in some of these races, uh, what, what this book lays out in pretty vivid detail is that they they're going into those decisions. Um, with their wi- eyes wide open, there's there's no more excuses. I mean, they the, you know this book shows uh, who Trump is as a president, as a candidate, and 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 that should inform uh, one way or the other uh, these decisions. Let me ask you a question that's not an audience question, but just mm-hmm. picks up on something you just said um, about Republicans having their eyes wide open about Trump and sort of the mm-hmm. the, asset, the assets and, and the liabilities. One liability when he was not on the ballot anymore was uh, January 5th, when he was campaigning for the Georgia Senate candidates. And mm-hmm. he showed up uh, at an event, He um, or January 4th, I'm sorry, uh, the day before the, the uh, runoffs there uh, for Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. Uh, he spent the bulk of the rally, which was supposed to be about these two candidates talking about fraud, and it was a rigged election, and it was stolen from me. Um, uh, the, the campaigns in Georgia um, are... 100% certain that that helped depress turnout and helped yeah. both of those candidates lose. Right. He's still talking about the same things. He has not stopped. If anything, he has accelerated it. Uh, there was a little window when he left office after the riot on January 6th where he had kind of tamped it down, and now he's back up to speed because one of his hallmarks is he just kind of keeps going. Um, do you sense from the people you're talking to, operatives, candidates, whomever, party chairs, yeah. um, that there is concern about the fact that he, what he wants to talk about in the midterms is not necessarily what the party wants to be talking about. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, um, and what's interesting is I, I see a lot of parallels between what the people around him now are saying compared to what they were saying right after November. Mm-hmm. That like, well, there's, you know, there, there, things are still kind of playing out in Georgia and Arizona. Mm-hmm. We'll see what happens and there might mm-hmm. be something where he can latch onto. I, I, you know, I, we've seen this movie before, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, even in Ohio, uh, I was there for that rally with, um, we were campaigning for Max Miller, who's running against mm-hmm. Anthony Gonzalez. And uh, I mean, half that rally speech mm-hmm. was about November 3rd, right? Mm-hmm. And like, he spent four years talking about 2016. He spent four years talking about a victory and then lost. Mm-hmm. So how is he, how he expects to spend the next four years talking about a defeat and right. a win Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's something that I don't quite follow quite yet, but that's why I'm, you know, I'm just a hack. And that's uh, why we're all watching, watching along. Um, I think we have time for one last question and I don't know that there's an easy answer to this, but what do you think all this means for the children growing up in this era, specifically the children of these diehard supporters? Um, I don't know. I mean, 
uh, maybe I'd answer that personally. Like, I, I don't know what it means. I, I do know that like my own two and a half year old um, was starting to ask for to watch Trump because like during the pandemic, that was the only time we turned the TV on really was to watch Trump. So um, there was a lot of moments um, at the end of that race where you watch Trump, watch Trump. Um, but, um, you know, I, 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 uh, I think, you know, maybe the bigger, maybe the right way to answer that question is, is like, we're seeing Americans become more and more interested in politics. It's not, it's not a phenomenon of Trump. Like we have been seeing the trend line increase for decades. Uh, yeah, and it's continued. Recent polling shows that the interest level has maintained. Yeah, exactly. Like Trump has, has yep. it was, you know, sort of supercharged that for a minute, but like that was the trend line and that is yep. the, the, the trend line continued. And, um, you know, I got to think at the end of the day that that's a good thing, um, you know, mm-hmm. for, for more people paying attention and more paying, people being, um, you know, uh, uh, wanting to, uh, you know, to pay attention and, and have their voice heard and, and that sort of thing. I think that is all the time that we have. Uh, I would like to thank all of you for being with us tonight. I would like to thank Mike Bender uh, for taking the time out of what is a crazy schedule uh, to do this event with us. Uh, frankly, we did win this election uh, is the book. You should go buy it. Uh, and uh, thank you to the Commonwealth Club for hosting us. Have a good night. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.